Before we get started in our class this evening, let's uh, make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. So you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we just thank you for this place that you've provided for us, that it has uh, so much uh, for us, and that it's you've provided so much in terms of the decorating and the internal provisions and everything, and it's the comfort and location. Father, we just are very grateful that uh, you have provided this for us. And Father, I'm grateful for this congregation, for their desire to know your word and to apply your word, for their uh, constant encouragement. We just pray that uh, we can be a real beacon of light and truth in the midst of a pagan culture around us. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that you would make clear to us the lessons that you have for us, the principles that we apply to our own spiritual life, that we make to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We just pray these things in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis 24. Genesis chapter 24, and the basic subject of Genesis 24 is that God provides a bride for Isaac. It's an example of God's ongoing gracious provision for Abraham and the Abrahamic family as he is working out his plans and purposes in relation to the Abrahamic covenant. And what we see in chapters 23 and 24 following the episode of the sacrifice of Isaac, we see the transition. Abraham got his final exam in chapter 22. Then in chapter 23, we uh, are told of the death of Sarah and her burial. And at the end of that chapter, there is a uh, brief uh, note of... of, um, or excuse me, at the end of chapter 22, there's the brief note of the uh, genealogy of Abraham's brother Nahor. And, of course, the focus of that, as we said last time, is on the birth of Rebekah. Rebekah will be the wife of, of Isaac, and Rebekah is the one who's going to be brought in and become the next matriarch, the replacement for Sarah into the next generation. And so chapter 24 focuses on God's grace provision. So we see the transition from Abraham now to Isaac will be almost complete by the end of this chapter. It's a focus on the future. It's a focus on the fulfillment of the promise. And the application principle for us is that God is always moving history towards a final fulfillment. And so there's always hope, which is the idea of of a confident expectation that ultimately God will bring about the resolution of all of His promises and all of the prophecies of Scripture, and everything points to that completion in the millennial kingdom that comes about after the second coming of Jesus Christ. In this chapter, the background doctrine that that incorporates everything in this chapter is really the faithfulness of God, that God is faithful to His promise, faithful to His Word, And God is the one who is going to oversee how his plan and purpose works out in history. God is the one who is going to oversee how his plan and purpose works out in each of our lives. So that just as we see the servant of Abraham here going about his mission and his task under the providential care of God, the same kind of thing takes place in our life. And the foundational doctrine for this is really encapsulated in a promise that's familiar to all of us, and that's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Now, if we just break this apart a little bit to think about what this promise is saying, the command is to trust in the Lord, not just faith in faith. It's something I've pointed out in the faith rest drill, that it's not faith in faith. It's faith in something specific. It's faith in a promise of God. 
faith in principles that are encapsulated in the Scripture. The focus is always ultimately on God who is behind the promises and the principles and the procedures that are revealed in Scripture. So we are to completely trust in Him, not partially, not uh, with most of our heart, but with all your heart. And the word heart here focuses on the internal part of man. We use the word heart uh, in, a, in a metaphorical sense, not to refer to that physical organ that pumps blood through the body, but we use the word heart to describe that which is at the center of something, that which is at the focal point of something. And we talk about the heart of a tree, or we talk about the heart of a matter, the heart of an issue, that which is at the center, at the core of something. And that's the essence of this metaphor. It's not talking about something that is circulating. It's talking about that which is at the very center of a person's life. And so it refers to our soul and the thinking that dominates and controls our soul. So we are to trust in the Lord with all of our thinking. Trust, the act of faith itself, is not an emotion. It is an intellectual process. It's a process of the mind. We have to understand something in order to believe it. You can't believe things you don't understand. You may think you do, but you don't. You have to understand it before you can believe it. And so the command is, trust in the Lord with all your heart, which means we have to think about what God has revealed. We have to come to understand it. Uh, and in contrast, we don't lean or depend on our own understanding, that is, our own frame of reference, leaning and depending upon human viewpoint, uh, understanding of life, and we have limited knowledge. We don't understand everything that's going on around us. We don't see the demons that are around us. We don't see the holy angels that are around us. We don't have an understanding of all the things that God is doing in our life. We just see a very small part of it. And so what we have to do is trust and God, because God is dealing with those things that we can't see, He's the one who is working out His plans and purposes in our life. So the contrast here is either we're trusting in the Lord and in His promises and procedures, or we're trusting in our own understanding, our own interpretation of events, and our own limited frame of reference. Verse 6 completes the idea by saying, in all your ways acknowledge him. And the, I, the, the word here for ways is the word in the Hebrew derek, which means paths. In all the paths of your life, in all of the courses of your life, in all the many different directions of your life, from your, your life in your family, your life in your profession, in your job, your, your, your thought life, your the, the life of, uh, within, with friendships, every dimension of life, your intellectual life, your professional life, in all of these dimensions of your life, we are to acknowledge Him, which means to place God first, that we are to submit and subordinate every category of thought in our life to the Word of God, that the Word of God provides that framework a frame of reference for all thought. There is no area of human intellection that is outside of God's framework. You can't talk about literature or politics or law or economic theory or governmental theory or history or any subject that you can think of. You can't go to that and study it without at some level incorporating that within a broader worldview, and that means you have to start with God. Whatever the subject may be, you start with the Scriptures, and then you go to, to your study. So you have to... That, that calls for in-depth teaching of the Word of God. The 20-minute sermonettes don't cut it. Uh, how, and, and it puts a tremendous pressure on a pastor because a pastor has to get out and to some degree study in areas that may not be his greatest area of expertise in order to at least help people see how the doctrine of the Word of God correlates to these other dimensions. So you have to come to some understanding of law and legal theory and philosophy of law, and you have to come to uh, understanding of history and politics and different political views. You don't start with society or with some political theory that sounds good, that is independent or autonomous from Scripture, and then you come to the Bible and, and interpret that uh, 
within this external framework. A great example was given to me the other day by my uh, good friend Tommy Ice. And Tommy was talking about the fact that now that he's moved to uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, he has joined a church there. I won't mention the church. You can probably figure it out, but we won't talk about the church. And he goes, he's going to the new member Sunday school class. And he said, well, Sunday morning it wasn't too bad. The guy was talking about Ephesians uh, chapter 4. Uh, and he was developing the purpose for the church and the, the gifts that are given, the apostles and prophets and uh, evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry. And he did a, and Tommy said he did a pretty decent job just going through the passage and, and showing what the purpose for the church was and the body of Christ. And then in the last ten minutes of the class he said, Now, I like to interpret this within a Maslowian framework. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Maslow was a great was a psychologist and social theorist in the mid part of the 20th century and developed a lot of thought, uh, development on motivations. I remember when I was in college in business classes and even in uh, uh, classes I took on leadership in ROTC. This was a big thing was to think about everything in terms of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Now, why in the world do you, does somebody want to come along when the Bible itself gives you its framework and tells you how to interpret life? Do you want to go to some pagan system of thought and then bring that over and interpret the Bible within that framework? But that's exactly what so many Christians do, whether it's Darwinism, whether it's some sort of framework out of socialism, uh, sociology or some system of human uh, psychology, whether it's Maslow or uh, uh, Freud or Jung or any of the combinations thereof, or whether you want to interpret philosophy and, and, and go to some uh, modern philosophical system, Hegelianism or existentialism, and, and this happens all the time because you don't people don't know how to start from Scripture and build out from Scripture a framework so that they can then interpret all these different areas that they're involved in in life. Uh, within this biblical context. And it happens with, with businessmen. And, and I've seen this with uh, as a pastor. I've gotten together with other pastors, and we, we always seem to complain about the, the worst kind of person you can get on your board of deacons is a moving and shaking entrepreneur. Because they operate day in and day out on a, on a model of business and sales and growth that always operates on quantifiable uh, goals and objectives, and then they bring that into the church and they say, what are we doing? What's our goal? What's our business plan for this year? What are we trying to accomplish by the end of the year? Why aren't we growing? Why don't we have more people? And in, 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 in a church, you deal with, you, we have, in many cases, non-quantifiable uh, goals and objectives. I can't measure your spiritual growth. I can't come in and say, well, how much have you grown? And the scriptural standard, as Paul states in, in 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, is what's, what's required of a steward is that he is found to be faithful. So when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, God's not concerned with how many numbers I got saved. He's not going to be concerned about how many people were in the church what he's going to be concerned about is, were you faithful in fulfilling the task of feeding my sheep and equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry? That's the only thing that God's going to be interested in and uh, the only thing I'm going to be evaluated on at the judgment seat of Christ is, did I fulfill that particular task? Not how many folks did you visit at the hospital, not how much money did you raise for this cause or that cause or some of these other things. So we just get so away from the Word of God that we start interpreting everything within a non-biblical framework. We lean on our own understanding. But if we acknowledge Him, put the Word first, think our lives out, think things out in terms of a divine viewpoint framework, then God directs 
our paths. This is a foundational verse for understanding divine guidance. God's not going to come in, tap us on the shoulder and say, you need to make this decision, you need to go to work for this company and not that company, you need to live in this house and not that house, you need to go to this college and not that college. Uh, God is going to direct us indirectly, and we see a picture of that in this particular uh, passage. Now, there's, as we look at this passage, the fundamental doctrinal framework for understanding the passage is the faithfulness of God in providing guidance and direction for the fulfillment of His plan. The faithfulness of God in providing guidance and direction for the fulfillment of His plan. And as a result of that, there are three corollaries to that principle that we see in the passage. First of all, the key operational doctrine in this passage is the faith rest drill, trusting God to provide the resources to fulfill his plan and destiny. The faithful servant that Abraham sends on the mission to find a wife for Isaac is trusting God to provide along the way. And this is exhibited by his prayers in the passage. Prayer is in a way, one way we express our trust in God. The second corollary is the grace of God is sufficient to fulfill his plan and purpose. God, in his grace, is going to provide everything we need to fulfill his plan and purpose. And in his grace, God is going to provide the bride he intends for Isaac in this early stage, this foundational stage for the nation Israel. And the third corollary is that the foundation for understanding God's plan and purpose the foundation for understanding God's plan and purpose is His revelation, His revealed Word. So what have I just talked about here? Three operational spiritual skills. We've got faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. And that's exactly what goes on here. The, the servant, as well as Abraham, recognizes God's grace is going to provide the wife for Isaac, the, the, uh, the person that God has in mind. Second, uh, in terms of doctrinal orientation, both of them are oriented to the Abrahamic covenant. That if God has promised descendants, then there has to be a wife for Isaac. And so they are oriented to the, to the Abrahamic covenant as their frame of reference for thinking, planning, and decision making. So they're going to trust in the Lord completely, not lean on their own frame of reference, and God is working in the background. And he's intentionally working in the background. And the, the idea throughout this whole passage, before we get to that, the, the next point of introduction, is given in Genesis 24:27, where the servant says, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who's not forsaken his mercy, that's his operational grace, and his truth, that's his revealed word. See, what do we have? Mercy, grace orientation, truth, doctrinal orientation. He has, well, has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me. See, first he, he takes his step walking by faith. And as he walks by faith, the Lord then, behind the scenes, working providentially through the circumstances, leads him to the correct decision. So it's not like he's in some sort of guessing game. Too many people present divine guidance in this way that somehow we have to figure out what God's perfect choice is for us. That's not how it works. As we trust the Lord, we know that he will guide and direct us along the way. Now this episode is a lot like what we experience in the church age. God is working in the background. He's intentionally keeping in the background. We don't see uh, any direct revelation uh, taking place. God isn't providing any miracles. There's no prophetic word. There's no casting of anything like the Urim and Thummim. There's no casting of lots. God is working completely in the background, and He is working through the circumstances to bring about uh, His desired will. So that helps us in understanding today how to how to follow the Lord's guidance. We trust in Him, and He works in the circumstances and makes our path straight, as Proverbs 3, 6 indicates. The object of faith that underlies this whole passage is again given in verse 
7 of this chapter in Acts 24, I'm mean, excuse me, in uh, Genesis 24:7. It's a reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham is talking to the servant and he says in verse 7, "The Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me saying, quote, to your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son there. See, the backdrop on this is he understands the Abrahamic covenant. Because he understands that promise, he is able then to make these decisions. Okay, let's go through the story. This is a long chapter, and we're not going to go through and just exegete every verse. That's not how you handle most narrative. Narrative is not designed that way. Uh, We'll look at the high points. 67 verses. And we'll catch the thrust of the chapter. Now, the first part of the chapter is in the first nine verses. The first nine verses deal with the commissioning of the servant. Abraham commissions his faithful servant to find a wife for his son, the promised seed. And so we see this episode where Abraham uh, takes his oldest servant, his most reliable servant, his faithful servant, and his unnamed servant. The chapter never names it. Now, many people in Jewish tradition identifies this as Eliezer from Genesis uh, chapter 15, but there's nothing here that ever identifies who the servant is. And most of us have always heard uh, that this is Eliezer, I'm sure, because many commentators just assume that because Eliezer was the one he was willing to adopt as his son back in Genesis chapter 15 is trustworthy, that that must be who this is. But the Scripture doesn't put a focus on the person. And that's another principle we have to note here. Throughout this chapter, the emphasis is not on the persons, but on their character. The emphasis is on his character as a faithful servant. And in comparison to God, who is a faithful God. On the other hand, when you come to a study, when we come to look at Rebecca, the test to discern who God is leading him to is a test that focuses on her character and not her other qualities, but on her on her character. So Abraham chooses his oldest and most reliable servant. Verse 1 says that he's old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. That's the New King James translation, and they've come close to catching the significance of the Greek there. The verb is, I mean, of the Hebrew there. The verb is barak, which means to bless, and it's in a perfect tense in the, in the Hebrew. And the perfect tense in the Hebrew in a construction like this should be understood to be and in, in what the same kind of thing we'd have in English, completed or perfective action, which means that, that the writer is saying, remember the Lord had already blessed Abraham in all things. It's completed action. It happened with the giving of the Abrahamic covenant. And same thing that Paul says to us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that at salvation God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. We already have it. It's our possession. And so it's a reminder that God had already blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest of his servants, as an outgrowth of this blessing, he's received his promised seed, and now there has to be an ongoing uh, development of, the, of, the, of his descendants. So he calls the oldest of his servant to his house, and he says, put, Please put your hand under my thigh. Now I want you to notice that when he says that, he, it's, a, it's a request that shows respect for his servant. And the, this idea of putting your hand under my thigh is something that's very foreign to us. And if you read the uh, customs of that time, it is an indication of, of an extreme oath. This is the uh, extremely serious and binding oath. And the idea is either that by placing the hand under the thigh, it brought the hand in contact with the genitals, or it was a symbol of that contact. And the genitals, of course, were a sign of life. It's a place of circumcision within the Abrahamic covenant. So there, there is a symbolism here that is ex- extremely serious. And so the, 
uh, it happens again in two or three other times in the Old Testament to, to stress the seriousness of this kind of oath. So the servant uh, is going to swear by the Lord. Verse 3, I will make you swear by the Lord Yahweh, the covenant God, the God of heaven and the God of earth. And when he says the God of heaven and the God of earth, this is the God of the universe. Uh, Hebrew doesn't have a word for universe. So you have this, what's called a merism, a figure of speech, where you you take the two opposites and you combine them together to indicate a totality, like day and night means all the time. Heaven and earth means the universe. And it is a reminder of what we read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So it is an emphasis on God as the creator God. And it's a, what we should hear in the background is the creator-creature distinction. But as the creator God, God is the sovereign God. He is the uh, ruler and director of human history. And, and specifically the history of Abraham's family and his descendants. So he says, I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Now why is that? Why doesn't Abraham want uh, his son Isaac, who was an eligible bachelor, and I'm sure that that all of the uh, Canaanite landowners around him, his neighbors, the uh, uh, Hittites, were all interested in having their daughters uh, marry off to Isaac. He was wealthy. He was uh, the, an only son, so he was going to get all of the inheritance. But Abraham does, is concerned to strongly prohibit the servant from taking a wife for Isaac among the Canaanites. And this goes back to the principle of separation, the doctrine of separation. In the New Testament, it's emphasized in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16, that believers have no business being involved in a close association with an unbeliever because, as Paul states it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, bad company corrupts good morals. There is always the tendency that the believer is going to be influenced by the by the values and by the thinking of the unbeliever. And there's going to if if Isaac were to marry a Canaanite daughter of a Canaanite, then he would come under the influence of her family and her relatives, and this could lead to assimilation into the the pagan culture. Uh, uh, surrounding him. And we see the same dynamic, well, we will see the same dynamic take place when uh, Jacob is sent back to look for a relative to marry outside the land. And then when Jacob's sons come along, the twelve progenitors of the twelve tribes, what happens there? They all start marrying Canaanite girls, and there's a threat to the seed line that it's going to be assimilated into the paganism of the Canaanite culture. So God interferes again in history with a famine. They sell Joseph into slavery. He goes down to Egypt, and all of that is is to prepare a place for God to remove the family down to Egypt where they're living in an environment where they're protected by the prejudice and the bias of the Egyptians so that the Jewish nation can grow to about 2 to 3 million people during that uh, during that period of, of slavery down in Egypt. God is protecting them from being assimilated to the paganism of the Canaanites. So Abraham is extremely concerned about this. Now 2 Corinthians 6.14 says... Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Four rhetorical questions, all focusing on the fact that believers have no business marrying unbelievers. And as parents, you need to drill this into your children. They should, you should be very protective of your children when they're young and they're growing up in terms of their friends, in terms of their peers, because they're going to be influenced by those, by the kids that they run with. 
and uh, they're going to pick up more human viewpoint and more of the cultural trends from those friends than anyone else. So it's the parents' job to protect them and train them so that they don't go off making mistakes when they get into college and when they're in their 20s and following their hormones and marrying some unbeliever and screwing up their life uh, for the rest of their life. Second uh, Corinthians 6.16 goes on to in, in reinforce this. In what agreement has the temple of God with idols? See, every believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So when a believer marries an unbeliever, what fellowship, what partnership is there with unbelievers? So there's an emphasis of separation from unbelievers so that there is not the danger of assimilating to uh, pagan culture. And see, this impacts education. It impacts, especially today, because our culture becomes more and more pagan. And so when kids are growing up in in public schools, as a parent, you have to pay close attention to what is going on in the classroom, what is going on with their peers at school, what's going on as they grow older, and you have to take whatever measure you can. I'm not saying that it's right, one thing's right or wrong in terms of Christian school versus homeschool versus public school. I'm not getting into that. What I'm emphasizing is ultimately it's the parent's responsibility to train up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Fundamentally, it's the father's responsibility, not to delegate it to the mother, but it's the father's responsibility to be the key leader in this. And that means fathers need to be in Bible class and provide that example of positive volition to kids. And you just don't see that uh, happening or taking place in many Christian homes today. And and I remember when I was in my first church, uh, there was a little four-year-old kid and his mother told me the story about she was trying to get him up to go to church one Sunday she said he said why this was a boy why should I go to church daddy doesn't go to church church is for mommies not for daddies he learned the lesson he learned it well because his father just was negative so it's a it's a sad thing but that's what goes on in our culture so Abraham recognizes the importance of maintaining that distinction and he uh, has the servant swear that he will keep this distinction. And so he sends him back to his home country, to his home family. Now, they're involved in paganism as well, but we know from some other verses in, in Scripture that even though they were worshiping the, the moon gods and the other gods of the culture, there was also a recognition of the reality and existence of Elohim. So they're, they're just uh, all mixed up, but there's some element of truth in the hometown family. So the servant says, raises the first objection. There's very, as you move through this story, it, it's just, it, it's a good historical narrative. There's four different points of conflict here where there are potential problems. How do you handle the problem? It's the tension in the narrative. How do you handle the problem? It says, what happens if she doesn't want to come? I go back and I find her, and what happens if, if she doesn't come back? And, and you've made me swear this incredible oath, and if, if she doesn't want to come, what do I do? And Abraham warns him again in verse 6, Beware that you don't take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and spoke to me and swore to me, To your descendants I'll give this land. He will send his angel before you. Now, you won't know his angels before you. The, this angel is either, uh, it could be the angel of the Lord. It could, it could just be a reference to any angel. But what Abraham is enforcing here is God will direct and oversee the circumstances of this particular visit because he is working out the, the, his promise given in the Abrahamic covenant. And then in verse 8, Abraham says, and if the woman's not willing to follow you, then you're going to be released from the oath. You won't have to carry it out. So the servant swears in verse 9, swears the oath, and then he leaves in verse 10. And so in verse 10, we come to the second part of the narrative that where the servant travels back to Aram Naharaim, which is the area between the two rivers in Aramea, specifically, specifically to the area of Haran. Remember, when Abraham left, he left Ur the Chaldees and went north up to what's generally in the area of northern Iraq today. And that was where Haran was located between the Euphrates and the Tigris River. That's what it means, Aram, the land of Aram. Naharaim of the two rivers, the two rivers being uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates. 
So the servant travels back to the city of of, uh, of Nahor and uh, Aram Naharim, and when he arrives there, he arrives in the evening, and he's taken ten of his master's camels with him, and he g- arrives there, and we're told that when the, when he gets there, the camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water, indicating that they're that they're thirsty. And he said he decides to pray. He's not sure. He's probably been thinking about how he's going to attack this problem of finding a woman that is a kinsman and that will return with him to be Isaac's wife. So he prays about it. This is his use of faith rest drill as exhibited in prayer. And he says, O Lord, God of my master, he addresses Yahweh. And what we learn from this servant is he is faithful because the servant understands doctrine. He's doctrinally oriented. This servant exhibits spiritual maturity throughout this entire uh, chapter. That's why continuously he's referred to as faithful. He prays, O Lord, God of my master Abraham. Now, why is he calling him God of my master Abraham and not my God? Because he's emphasizing that promise to Abraham. That's the foundation for this whole episode is the further development of the promise to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. And he uh, requests of God, Please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. And then he sets up a... Uh, a test. He says, Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your pitcher that I may drink, says, and she says, Drink, and I will also give you camels to drink. In other words, he says, Let the woman come out here, and when I go over and ask her for a drink of water, I will know it's the right one because, number one, she's going to be kind to me, and she's going to offer me water. And she's going to treat me with respect. But not only that, she will, on her own initiative, from her own character and her own concern, she's going to look over and notice the camels, and she's going to realize they're thirsty as well. And so she's going to, of her own initiative, want to uh, take care of the camels. So she will also freely offer to water the camels. And that was exactly what took place. And in verse 15, we're told that... Almost immediately before he had finished speaking, see God hears our prayers and answers sometimes before uh, before we finish the request. Rebecca, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor. Notice it wasn't born. If we go back to that genealogy at the end of chapter 22, it's not born to his uh, concubine, but it is born. She was born to uh, to his wife to Abraham's brother. So that means she is a first cousin once removed. I always get confused over those second cousins and third cousins, but but her father and Isaac would have been first cousins, so that means she's first cousin once removed. Now, some people would say, well, boy, that's awfully close. But you see, you don't have any prohibition in Scripture on marriage between close relatives until the Mosaic Law. Now, why is that? Well, the prohibition is designed to prevent problems from from uh, too close of a genetic mix. But when you go back to the fact that this is in an early stage of the human race, remember just about ten generations earlier that they got off the ark, so there's still enough genetic complexity in each individual to where uh, close relations can marry and they're not going to have problems with birth defects or other problems in their descendants. By the time you get to the Exodus generation, it's clear that there has to be a further separation so that there's there, because the gene pool gets, gets more and more uh, diluted. So she comes out and we're told about her in verse 16. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold a virgin, no man had known her, and she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. So he's watching her, and he wouldn't have known this information about her. This is supplied by Moses, and it's supplied by the Holy Spirit. All he sees is this young woman, and perhaps her dress indicates the fact that she's not married, and so he recognizes that, and he goes down to meet her. He runs to meet her, which indicates his enthusiasm. And he says, "Please let me drink a little water from your picture from your pitcher." And she said, "Drink, my lord." She shows respect for him. 
She shows that she understands protocol. She she understands she's kind to him. She exhibits generosity of spirit and grace orientation and she she offers for him to drink. She quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. So she pours the water out of the pitcher for him and he drinks and then when he's done, she takes what's left and instead of just throwing it on the ground or going back for a refill in the well, she just walks over and pours it in the trough for the camels. And then she starts to uh, get more and more water. There's ten camels. Ten camels been walking in the desert for a while are mighty thirsty. This takes a while. And it's going to take maybe 20, 30 minutes. And he patiently sits back and watches. Notice he's waiting on the Lord to fulfill his the answer to his prayer. And so as he watches, he's learning about her, watches how she moves, watches her enthusiasm, her desire to help. She doesn't do this grudgingly. She does it out of the generosity of her own soul. And so he remains silent, just watching her, according to verse 21. And when she finished, the man then, because he realizes God has answered his prayer, and to indicate who he is, he's not just some wayfarer, some homeless person coming through uh, town. He gives her a, a present of jewelry. And he gives her a golden nose ring, and that can also mean, the Hebrew word can also indicate an earring. So there's there's uh, room for maneuver on that particular phrase. Uh, nose ring that weighs half a shekel and two bracelets for her uh, for her wrist. The half a shekel is about a half an ounce or one-fifth of an ounce. And the two gold bra- bracelets that weigh ten shekels weigh about four ounces. So this, and they're, they're golden, and so this indicates that he is wealthy or represents a wealthy patron, and, he ha- and they, they give credentials, they give significance and credibility to the offer that he is eventually going to make. And he asked her, now, so far he's convinced God's answered the prayer, but he doesn't know the family. This is the last part of, the, of, of her uh, requirement. And she says, Who, whose daughter are you? Tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? See, he's not there alone. He's got his servants who are keeping in the background. And she says, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son. So she refers to her her. Uh, father and his mother as the wife of Nahor and she says we have both straw and feed enough there's enough food back come on back to the house and and she invites him home so he look notice his response in verse 26 grace orientation he is thankful he bows his head and he worships the Lord he bows his head and he worships the Lord. That's how it's translated. Other translations, in which probably better, is he bowed down his head and he prostrated himself before the Lord. The word there that's translated uh, worship is a word that means to uh, to bow down. It's the Hebrew word shacha, which means to bow down. The hishtafel, it means to uh, bow down and it in- indicates worship. And that's what worship is. Worship is the idea of Submitting ourselves to God. And here we see one of the many different dimensions to worship. Worship is any act of obedience to God, recognizing that God is in authority over us. So worship takes place in obeying God's Word. That's why we talk about Sunday morning or any Bible class is a time of worship, because we're learning what God expects of us. We're learning how to think biblically. And when we are responding to that, by learning His Word, by taking the time out of our busy schedules to submit to God by learning His Word, that is worship. Whenever we apply doctrine, that is worship. Whenever we're involved in Christian service, that is worship. Whenever we bow our heads and thank God just for whatever the circumstances are, that is worship. Whenever we sing praises to God, that is a response to what God has done graciously in our lives. So the singing of hymns in church is a form of worship because we it is a response to what God has done in our lives. So this is how he what is taking place here. He bows his head and he is thankful to God for how God has answered his prayer, and that is worship. He is expressing his obedience and his authority orientation to God. 
And he says, verse 27, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. And here we see two crucial words in this passage, mercy and truth. And the word for mercy is the Hebrew word chesed. It's a familiar word to us. It means kindness. It means loving kindness. And frequently it's used in covenant context indicating faithfulness to the covenant and the translation I like is loyal faithful love it, it emphasizes loyalty faithfulness to a contract and that that love that kindness and generosity toward the object and truth is the Hebrew word emet which means firmness truth stability it is the stability of God's word, of his covenant. God's word is the rock on which we build our lives. It is, uh, it, it is that which is stable and dependable. And that's where the word faithful also comes out of the concept of, of emmet, but that's usually emphasized in another form of the word. So he has not forsaken his mercy which is grace orientation and his truth doctrine orientation toward my master. As for me being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. He's following the principle of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, even though Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 isn't written until another thousand years by Solomon. He understands the principle. So the young woman is all excited because of what has happened. She runs home to tell the family, and then we're introduced to her Brother Laban. Now, Laban is the kind of guy that if this were an opera, all of a sudden you'd hear, uh, hear the bass. Laban is, and this is foreshadowing the future, because Laban is such a conniver. He tries to out-connive Jacob, who is the conniver. And, and you just can't trust Laban for anything. And as soon as she tells Laban, Laban runs out to meet the man by the well. And you can almost get the impression, because he goes out and he helps the guy, and he brings his, brings his uh, uh, camels and servants back, and he's gonna, going to take care of them. But you see, Laban saw the gold the guy gave her. And he's just obsequious as he can be, and he wants to ingratiate himself uh, into the good favor of this, this traveler, so he'll get some, some money also, and so somebody will give him some gold. And that, this is a foreshadowing for us of his of his character once he comes back into the scene later on when uh, Jacob is trying to negotiate with Laban for his daughters uh, for a wife. So the servant comes into the house, is invited into the house, and when he comes in, they're going to be very hospitable, offer him dinner, and he says, no, 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 I've got a mission. He recognizes the priority of his mission and the seriousness of that oath, it weighs heavy on him. He's not going to stop. He's not going to sit down. He's not going to eat dinner or get comfortable. He's going to go about his mission. And so he explains to them that he has been sent by Abraham, who made him swear that uh, he will come and find a wife and not provide a wife for his, his son from the daughters of the Canaanites, verse 37. So he rehearses everything from from the commissioning that was given to him by Abraham all the way down to his travel, identify, the, the, his prayer to God before Rebecca showed up at the well, uh, how she showed up, what went on, how she provided water for him, how she provided waters for the camel, showing that all of this fits God's providential care, that, this, that what she did fit precisely what he had asked for. In fact, it didn't just fit it precisely, it went above and beyond what he had asked for was greater than his expectations. And so it's very clear that God has provided uh, for them. And so it becomes uh, clear to the family that, that God is leading. And, and they really don't have anything to say. And in verse 50 we read, Then Laban and Bethuel, her father, answered and said... Now it's interesting, Laban is mentioned first. And that indicates that Laban by this time has become the head of the house. Bethuel is probably uh, very old by this time. And so he's not really with it much anymore. And Laban has taken over leadership of the family. So Laban and Bethuel answered and said, Well, it's obvious this thing comes from the Lord. And they used the term Yahweh there. So that again shows that, that Abraham's family has some 
awareness of who God is, and they're not just idolaters, but they do have uh, some understanding of the uh, of the nature of God. And so they say this thing comes from Yahweh. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. We can't contradict you. We're left speechless. Obviously, God is working. So here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son and wife. But we're going to have another problem to overcome. And the next problem to overcome is that that by the next morning, Laban and the girl's mother decide that, well, maybe we can keep her here for another year. Now, we see another foreshadowing here of how Laban uh, first offers... uh, uh, Rachel to to Jacob, and then he's going to say, "No, nah, you got to work for it for seven years." And then he works for it for seven years, and then when they have the wedding, he puts a veil on the less attractive older sister. And uh, well, in Texas, we used to call that buying a pig and a poke. But that's uh, he he takes her and he substitutes at the wedding. And when Jacob goes back at night, he he takes the veil off, and well, he's got the less attractive older sister. So now he has to go back to Laban. So you, know, you see these these foreshadowings of his future future character. He really doesn't want to uh, let Rebecca go. Just let he, maybe he'll get a little more money out of the deal. And so God works. the The faithful servant demonstrates his his trust in God, and he's just going to put it in the Lord's hands. And he says in verse fifty six, "Don't hinder me." Since the Lord has prospered my way, he's a reminder of how God has worked things out. He says, don't hinder me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I can go to my master. And so they said, well, let's ask her. They're thinking that they can manipulate the situation, see they can have some control over her. And I have a sneaking suspicion that Rebecca was ready to get out of this household. She understood what her brother was like. She wants to get out of here. And so she said, she's asked in verse 58, will you go with the man? She says, I'll go. I'm out of here. Bags are packed. I'm ready to head on out. So they sent her away, and Rebecca, their sister, with her nurse. This would be uh, her handmaiden. And Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, that's our member of the family, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousand. So there, there's a prophetic nature to this blessing that through her there would be, uh, that nations would come, that thousands and ten thousands would come. And may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. And this pictures the fact that the gates, is the, the gates of a town in the ancient world was where city council would meet. That's where the local judges would meet the city. The, the city gates was the the power center. This is city hall, and so what this is indicating is that they're saying, "May your descendants take over the the places of power and influence away from your their enemies." And so it foreshadows the fact and prophesies the fact that their descendants would eventually take the land of Canaan and possess the cities of those who were their enemies. So then in verse 61 and following down to 64, they head back. And we're told in verse 62 that Isaac is down in Beir Lahai Roy. Now, that, you know, these things just aren't thrown in there by the Holy Spirit out of coincidence. He didn't just decide to get up and I'm going to go down and just wander around in the in the uh, desert a little while. He's at this well that's named that by Hagar. And you remember the story when Hagar first got pre- pregnant with Ishmael and, and uh, uh, Sarah kicked her out, that she goes into the wilderness and God appeared to her. And God promised her, he said, go back, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to watch over you, and there will be a future and a destiny uh, for your son uh, Ishmael. And so she named the well Beir, for well, Lahai Roy. This is the well, the God who sees. And she recognized that God sees in the sense that he understands history and he overrides history. And God is taking care of history uh, providentially. And so Isaac is at that same place. So as soon as we read that name, Beir Lahairoi, we should be thinking about God's control of history. And he's out there to meditate in the field. He knows the mission that the servant is on, that he's looking for a wife. And Isaac is praying continuously through this period for the the success of the servant's mission. And so he is pictured here 
as being faithfully dependent upon the Lord, waiting upon the Lord to provide a wife for him. And as they approach, they come to Isaac first. Isaac sees them, and Rebekah then lifts her eyes, sees Isaac, and she dismounted from her camel. Now, you know, this doesn't mean a whole lot to us. Of course she got off the camel, but this is a sign of respect to someone in authority. That if, if someone, if a woman is on a, on a camel and the man is on the ground, to show respect for him, to honor him, show good manners and deference, she gets off the camel to speak to him. She's not going to speak to him from sitting up on the camel. You see the same kind of thing in, well, the same episode is related in both Joshua and Judges, where uh, Othniel is asked for the hand of Oxa, or is given the hand of Oxa as a reward. Oxa is the daughter of Caleb. And Othniel goes out and uh, uh, defeats the Canaanites in a major battle, and Caleb is going to give him Oxa as a reward. And Oxa decides that she's going to influence the family and say, you know, Daddy's going to give you this piece of property, but we really need this contiguous piece of land because there's a good well there. And so she rides her camel back to Caleb and dismounts the, from the camel and comes down and, and she makes a request of her father. So it's a, it shows that she has good training. She understands good manners and protocol and she shows respect for Isaac. And she gets off and she, she has, she asks the servant, who's this man walking out to meet us? And notice she's dismounted from the camel before she knows who it is, which indicates, uh, her, her train. She's not just doing this because it's Isaac. She doesn't know who he is yet. And the servant tells Isaac the whole story. And then in verse 67, then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. Now why is that? Because it's, Rebecca is replacing Sarah now as the matriarch within the the descent of the Abrahamic seed. And he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now from this point on, little is said about Abraham. The shift now has taken place to where Isaac is center stage and his wife Rebekah. And they are the focus now instead of Abraham and Sarah. And we have just a short note in the next chapter from verses 1 through 11 on Abraham's marriage to a second wife, Keturah, and then his death in verses 7 to 11. Now, in conclusion, what we learn from this is that the background for this whole episode is the Abrahamic covenant. It's God's promise of positional reality to Israel. And on the basis of that positional reality, the Jews can make decisions from this point out in terms of their spiritual life because there's this bedrock of God's provision of blessing in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the application for us is we have the same positional reality in the, in the fact that we are baptized into Christ. That's our positional truth. And in that identification with Christ, Ephesians 1.3 says we are blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. That's our spiritual positional truth. And just as in the Old Testament, this servant is able to exploit what God provided in the promise of the covenant, in the same way in the New Testament, as church-age believers, we are to exploit what the Holy Spirit has provided for us at, at, uh, at salvation. Secondly, we see that because of God's foundational promise to Abraham, he is going to providentially guide and direct their fortunes to bring about the fulfillment. God, because of his promise, he is going to providentially work to work out his plan and purposes for Israel. In the same way, because of your position in Christ... God is going to work His way providentially in your life to work out His plan and purposes. And if we're disobedient, then that's going to bring about divine discipline and difficulty in our life. Because God is not going to back off of His plan to conform us to the image of His Son, Romans 8.29. That is His purpose. And He is going to be working 
through our circumstances to bring about his desired goal. So our responsibility is to follow the same pattern that we see with the faithful servant. That is, we trust God in all things. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. We are to operate on the basis of doctrine. We need to understand the positional reality that we have in Jesus Christ. And then third, we need to operate on the basis of grace, recognizing that God has already blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, and then we need to exploit that. Next time we'll come back, look at the conclusion of Abraham, work through uh, the transition to the next stage in the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant in the life of Isaac, with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, thank you for this evening, the challenge, the encouragement of your word to trust you, to understand your grace provision, to exploit that, because that is consistent with your will. Uh, Help us to be challenged and to apply the promise of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.